And so our patients are really motivated to get back to, you know, hugging their grandchildren and to be with their families again because they've done an amazing job of keeping themselves isolated. And so they're very motivated to be vaccinated. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is David Cohn. Dave is the chief medical officer of the James and a gynecologic cancer specialist. Our topic is the COVID-19 vaccine and what cancer patients need to know about the vaccine. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of misinformation out there. And so Dave will fill us in on the facts, the science of how the vaccine works, how it works in cancer patients who might have immune system issues and why it's so really very important for cancer patients to get the vaccine as soon as they're eligible. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's always a pleasure to be here and speak with you. So I'm glad you're here because there's so many questions about the vaccine now that we're, it's starting to roll out in bigger numbers, thank goodness. So, but first, before we get into the specifics, give us an update on sort of the landscape of COVID across the medical center of OSU and even beyond. So we're at an interesting time at the moment. Um, we've obviously seen a few very large spikes of COVID um, since March of 2020. Imagine it's been a year already that we've been dealing with this in the United States. And so, you know, a big spike that occurred early on and then another spike around December timeline and then another spike thereafter. And so we're at the downslide uh, as we're seeing it here in the hospital with a decreasing number of individuals that are hospitalized locally with COVID. Um, and across the state, we're still in our county at a red zone, meaning a very high incidence of COVID, but those numbers are also going down. So it's fairly encouraging that we are starting to see the, you know, a brightening light at the end of what's been a very long tunnel for a lot of different reasons. Now, you would probably have a better idea than other people. A year ago at this time, we're, we're, we really are coming up on about a one-year anniversary. Did you have an inkling that it was going to get this bad and would take a year or, and more to really get it under control? You know, I reflect back in recognizing that there were experts at the time that said that with this novel virus that nobody had been exposed to, that we were at risk for experiencing, you know, numbers like they saw in the in the Spanish flu of 1918. And so that's a staggering amount of uh, cases and deaths that occurred across the US. And so I think that there was a possibility that we would see this, but certainly I don't think anybody would have imagined that we would be here a year later, still distanced wearing masks and having life that looked nothing like it did in February of 2020. So. Uh, while it was always out there that it could have been this case, I don't think that anybody imagined that we would be here now still having this conversation. And perhaps no one wanted to think that far ahead. <laughs> you know, it's always like we live in like one or two week or even month long uh, baskets and no one wants to think that something like this could last that long. And, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. And again, I want to reflect back that for those of our listeners that are familiar with Columbus, um, and the Arnold uh, Festival, you know, back in March of 2020, the governor and the Ohio Department of Health made a very bold and a very early decision to cancel what is one of the largest gatherings in Columbus for, you know, the Arnold Sports Fitness Expo. And at that point in time, I, I think that 
people thought that this was an overreaction, unnecessary, and that this COVID virus would not be anything that would be a threat to our communities. Um, turned out that that probably was responsible for being able to help to manage the early pandemic, the numbers that many different regions were seeing. But that was a very bold statement at the beginning that turned out to be kind of the harbinger of what we were going to see then months into the pandemic of rising cases and, and a substantial amount of individuals being sick and dying from COVID. You know, I've talked to the Arnold people and yes, you are absolutely right. That could have been the super spreader event because there were people from every state in the country, 30 or 40 or 50 different countries all flying in and out of Columbus, all gathered together in small spaces. It, and that was before we were wearing masks and really knew. So yes, I mean, I've thought about that a lot, that, that Columbus could have been the epicenter of COVID if they hadn't canceled the Arnold. Yep. The timing would have been perfect for this to be an area of a huge number of cases that came into Columbus and it would have been Seattle or New York very early on before we knew what we were doing. And I say that because now we're a lot more comfortable with managing COVID and the illness, but also about prevention and kind of being in a position to understand how to allocate resources that may be scarce. And I think that that's, you know, this vaccine conversation we're having today is exactly that. It's the allocation of a scarce resource uh, where the demand for vaccinations are very often higher than the potential supply. Well, that's a great point, and we're going to certainly get into that. But, but first, explain the science of the vaccine, how, how vaccines work and how this specific vaccine worked and the really almost amazing work and genius these scientists came up to create three vaccines that have now been approved in months. Yeah. So, you know, again, titled Operation Warp Speed, how fast can you get something uh, up and running? Um, and I think that the, you know, it, it's been accomplished. So the history, obviously, there's been a lot of work on vaccines over many, many decades. Um, the technology that's utilized for two of the three currently authorized vaccines are called mRNA technology. And the other one is called an adenoviral technology or adenoviral vector. Let's start with the adenoviral vector. And that's the, you know, uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine that was authorized for emergency use by the FDA uh, yesterday, uh, which yesterday is March the 1st. And that's using a traditional uh, virus, a cold virus to deliver something to our bodies that cause an immune response specific to the COVID virus. And so we're using a virus to introduce some, um, something that causes our bodies to lead to, a to an immune response that's gonna fight off illness that's caused by COVID. So that's this one technology, adenoviral. A and that's been used for many different viruses, excuse me, many different vaccines in the past. So this is not new technology. The change in technology was with the mRNA vaccines, which are the ones that are produced by Moderna and by Pfizer. And these vaccines have a similar process of delivering material that causes our bodies to create an immune response, but that's using a genetic material called mRNA that triggers that type of immune response rather than having the vector be the virus itself. Um, either way, there's no live COVID that's being introduced, and that's really important. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the misconceptions because in, I think in other vaccines like polio vaccines, they introduce a little tiny bit of the disease. So your immune system has a memory of it. But in this case, the misconception is that they're doing that and introducing some of the COVID as part of the vaccine, but they're not, is what you're saying. That's correct. And none of the three currently authorized vaccines are using actual live COVID or COVID period um, as a process to induce the immune response. It's either, um, it, it is some type of material that causes our bodies to fight off the COVID infection um, through a mechanism where it recognizes something on the surface of COVID called the spike protein, which is what is used to attach to some parts of our bodies that cause illness. And so the process is the same, but it's not live COVID and people will not get COVID as a result of the vaccine. One of the many misconceptions. But does that misconception come from the fact that if I was corrected in other vaccines, they do introduce a, a either dead or small portion of that disease into your immune system. So it recognizes it when it comes, could come for real. That's exactly right. And I think the important thing, Steve, is that in this circumstance, when a vaccine is given, it causes an immune response. And that means that our bodies kind of react to something and it makes us feel as if we could be ill. And that illness might manifest as fever, body aches, or chills. Sounds like a virus. And so I think that there's that association that while our bodies are creating an immune response to help to fight off a virus, some of those side effects feel like an actual illness a viral illness like you would with influenza or the flu. And therefore it's that association that we must be getting a virus that's making us sick rather than our bodies reacting in a way that makes us feel as if it's similar to if we're infected with a virus. So to, to make sure I fully understand and help other people understand in these three vaccines, they introduce something that helps your immune system recognize the spikes on the coronavirus, not the actual coronavirus. So when if and when someone gets infected with it, your immune system says, aha, we know this enemy. We know we've got to attack this enemy. And then your immune system goes into full overdrive, full attack mode. And hopefully in most in 95, 97% of the cases, you have no illness or very minor illness. That's exactly right. And I want to make sure that I emphasize that point that you made, which is that vaccination doesn't prevent somebody from getting infected with the coronavirus. It prevents the severe or the moderate illness that results from becoming infected with it. And so there's a lot of still uncertainty, but it does seem as you've demonstrated that 95% or so of individuals who have been vaccinated, if they are exposed to coronavirus to COVID, that they would not have moderate or severe illness, they wouldn't be hospitalized, and they would not die as a result of becoming infected with COVID. Okay, that is, yep, I'm glad you re-emphasized that because that's an important point that people should know. So let's talk about cancer patients now. What are you seeing? I've, I've heard from someone else that cancer patients who are very, very concerned about their health are taking great precautions wearing masks, social distancing, is it working? I would start by saying that even broader than just in cancer patients, we're seeing a lot of great work from the community of patients with cancer or patients that have a, a normal risk 
are distancing, they're wearing masks, they're using hand sanitizer or washing their hands and they're limiting their environment. So I think I just want to recognize everybody in the community that's doing the right thing. But when you start to look at that overall community, you know that within there, uh, there are individuals that are at higher risk for having uh, severe complications if they were to get COVID. And that includes cancer patients because cancer patients' immune responses are somewhat decreased because of their cancer, their treatment of chemotherapy or radiation compared to the general population. So our cancer patients have been um, recognized for doing an exceptional job for distancing and hand washing and limiting their environment and wearing masks because we've told them that they really should avoid becoming infected because we wanna avoid them having those severe side effects. Now, I'm very curious if someone in undergoing cancer treatment their immune, immune system is compromised. What exactly does that mean, comp, the word compromised in this context? And how would that make them more susceptible to severe illness if they contracted COVID? So the word immunocompromised is a combination of your immune system, uh, immuno, and then compromised, meaning it doesn't work as well as it normally would. And there's a lot of ways that you can get to an immune system which is compromised. Sometimes it can be through the traditional uh, means, you know, cancer treatment uh, knocks out some of the infection fighting cells, and therefore you are more at risk for developing uh, infections and therefore um, illness. But also things like HIV or diabetes can also suppress the immune system through other mechanisms as well. So there's a lot of ways to get there. Uh, but cancer and cancer treatment in and of itself is a very common way that patients' immune systems can be less functional than someone that doesn't have cancer or has not had cancer treatment. So from, let's see if I've learned my lessons from you and other people. The T cells are, the, are one of the keys to the immune, immune system who, that fight anything that shouldn't be there, like um, cancer cells and COVID-19 is that when you say someone's immune system is, is compromised or lesser than it should be is, are the T cells impacted? They have lesser T cells, which means they have less members of their army to fight the battle. I think that's a way that you can certainly describe it. Dr. Wartenberg, you've got your official doctorate at this point in time. You've done well. <laughs> exactly. Honorary doctorate. Um, you know, it is not just the T cells. That's one mechanism, but the B cells are the other parts of the immune system and other parts called the natural killer cells. So there's a whole host of members of that army, like you described, that are working to fight against um, uh, against folks that are trying to hurt us. And so that's, that's the way I would describe it is that there's a whole group that comes together uh, that try to keep us healthy. And the process by which vaccination can help us is through, you know, having some external factor that is able to supplement our natural immune systems. And that, that helps somebody that's got a normal immune system, but it's probably even more important for folks that don't have a full immune system or that they're immunocompromised like our cancer patients. So I, I've heard that some cancer patients are worried that because of what we just said, my immune system is compromised. This vaccine could be itself could be a problem. So fill us in on the facts about that. So in order to have a response to a vaccine, you have to have some level of an immune system. And in general, almost every single patient, whether they have cancer or have had cancer treatment or not, all have some level of the ability to mount an immune response to a vaccine. And I think that's really important, meaning 
there's nobody um, except for a specific group that I'll talk about in a second that wouldn't benefit from having COVID vaccination because everybody can mount some level of an immune response to a vaccination. The only group that probably doesn't are those specific cancer patients who've had just recently within the last 30 days had a bone marrow transplantation. And the reason for that, and this is kind of getting a bit technical, is that in order to get your bone marrow transplant into a patient, you actually have to, you have to eliminate their natural immune system entirely so that they can then accept that bone marrow transplant and have that grow back within their bodies. So during that 30-day window, someone does not have any immune system. And that's typically why patients are um, either hospitalized or in a very controlled environment immediately after a bone marrow transplant. But short of that, everybody's got the ability to have an immune response to vaccination. So those patients for those that 30-day period until their immune system rebounds, they're going to be are they hospitalized for that entire time? There's a lot of different ways that bone marrow transplants are done. Hospitalization is certainly common, but there's been a large push to have an outpatient transplantation to improve the quality of life of patients that are receiving transplants. That's very commonly done as well. So the goal is is for that 30-day period to be as isolated and safe as possible. And then once your doctor says it's time to go, get your vaccine. That's exactly right. And so during that first 30 days, you may not have the ability to have an immune response to vaccination. So you want to hold off until after that point in time to maximize the value. Okay, great. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're going to come back, Dave's going to fill us in on who's getting the vaccine now and some work to hopefully get more cancer patients to get the vaccine. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dave Cohn, the Chief Medical Officer of the James, who's been filling us in on what cancer patients need to know about the COVID-19 vaccine. So Dave, as you mentioned, um, it's early March, and just yesterday, the governor and the state announced new people are eligible to get the vaccine and, and dropping it to 60 and over. So where do cancer patients um, fall in to what's open for them and who, who can get it and who can't? We certainly heard a lot of enthusiasm from the governor yesterday and from the um, director of the Ohio Department of Health when the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was authorized for emergency use, because that means that there's the expectation for a lot more supply being in the state of Ohio. And for that reason, uh, Governor DeWine opened up the allocation of vaccines to individuals older than 60, starting on March the 4th. So it's pretty exciting. So from a cancer patient standpoint, anybody who is 60 and older, whether or not they have cancer are now eligible for vaccination. And so that's the, the majority of our cancer patients right there. But for those individuals that have cancer that are younger than 60, there's a specific group that was included in the allocation yesterday, uh, the announcement, and those includes patients who've had bone marrow transplantation for cancer and other blood conditions. So 
those are the group, as we talked about before, whose immune systems might be the most compromised because they're just growing back. And so they're going to be allocated vaccination uh, independent of their age group starting on Thursday, March the 4th. So how far back will that go? If someone had that bone marrow transplant two years ago, are they eligible? Is it anyone who's ever had one or just within a certain time period? So the governor was not specific exactly as to how long ago a bone marrow transplant had to be to have someone eligible. I would just say that, you know, an individual who's had a bone marrow transplantation should speak with their healthcare provider to see whether or not they should be an appropriate person for vaccination. Okay. So as you mentioned, the governor just announced uh, 16 over and bone marrow transplant patients, and hopefully soon he'll roll out more and more. There's been a lot of advocacy uh, on behalf of our cancer patients um, across the state of Ohio and certainly here at the James Cancer Hospital to make sure that the governor and the Ohio Department of Health understand that cancer patients, not just with bone marrow transplant, but all cancer patients, and especially those that are currently being treated, are at much higher risk for getting COVID or having COVID-related complications or dying of infection. So we continue to advocate very aggressively to make sure that when the supply increases, that our cancer patients are amongst those that you might be able to have them vaccinated outside of their age group. And Steve, I just want to make a comment about that, uh, the one dose for Johnson & Johnson versus the two doses for the mRNA vaccines. Uh, we've heard from a lot of patients, you know, should I wait and get a specific type of vaccination because one works better than the other, one vaccine versus two? Um, what I would say is that let's kind of get back to the principle that um, any vaccination is better than no vaccination. And so if you are eligible for vaccination and if you show up for your vaccine appointment and they have, you know, one of them and not the other of them, you say, thank you. I'm happy to get that vaccination, whichever one is presented to you. Meaning I wouldn't wait around for one or the other. Um, the way that we get out of this collectively is by having the majority of the population, if not all of it, vaccinated so that we can get back to a life which seems a bit more on the normal side. Now, we've heard that a certain percentage of the population is resistant to getting the vaccine. Uh, if I had to guess, I would bet that percentage is pretty low within the cancer community. What have, what have you seen? Yeah, we've seen that most of our cancer patients are very excited about the opportunity to be vaccinated because, you know, it's amazing. I made the comment to a couple of patients the other day that at the date of their vaccination, because we're doing this at the Schottenstein Center, vaccinating up to 4,000 patients per day in the Schottenstein Center, big arena, that they're going to see more people on the day of their vaccine than they've probably seen collectively over the last year. And so our patients are really motivated to get back to, you know, hugging their grandchildren and to be with their families again, because they've done an amazing job of keeping themselves isolated. And so they're very motivated to be vaccinated. That being said, there is a lot of hesitancy for vaccination across a number of different communities. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that um, we are getting education out there that's grounded in fact and science to make sure that all of these preconceptions about the negative side of vaccination um, is balanced out with the reality of where we're seeing what we're seeing today. Boy, that point about grandparents getting to hug their grandchildren is just so, or not being able to, is just so sad. It's heartbreaking. It really is. Now, being a frontline medical worker, you had your vaccine, I assume. 
January 19th was vaccine number one. Absolutely. We know that there are side effects from the vaccine. They're relatively mild. They're relatively common, meaning arm soreness, maybe a little bit of fever, um, some body aches and potential chills. Severe side effects are really rare. So I feel very comfortable with myself, obviously, and for my family to be vaccinated whenever it's appropriate for them to be so. Yeah, um, I am eligible as of Thursday. So I'm already <laughs> online trying to, trying to get mine lined up. Get in line. Exactly. It's great. At uh, 12.01 a.m. on <laughs> when to start looking. It's like the olden days of waiting in line for concert tickets, right? You know, I'm going to be here at 12.01 when they start allocating concert tickets. I'm old enough to remember when you would wait in line at the Schottenstein Center for uh, <laughs> I was wait in line there. Just, right. Get mine. So, so boy, what a year it's been. What do you think you and the, and the team have learned about so many different topics that you think you'll be able to use as we go forward and we're return to whatever the new normal is this changes in, in policies or treatments or the way you interact and communicate with, with patients. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to answer that a couple of different ways is that I, I'm really proud to be a faculty member at the Ohio state university Wexner medical center and James cancer hospital, because our ability to work together to collectively address the issues of the COVID-19 pandemic have just been remarkable. And I think that OSU has put itself out there as a true national and international leader in the space. And so we've learned so much about the ability to communicate amongst each other for the betterment of the patient. And so always thinking about the patient first and the policies and procedures that we, that we make has been really impressive. That being said, Steve, what I have also realized is that there are some really hard trade-offs that we always have to make. And I just wanna reflect back on the incredible challenges that we've had with our visitor policy, our, our um, not allowing visitors into the hospital and into the outpatient settings. And we talked about how heartbreaking it is to not have grandparents hugging their grandchildren. It's also heartbreaking to realize that during the midst of a pandemic, we have to think about the health and well being of our faculty, of our staff, and of our patients as a whole. And the downside to that is that we had to limit visitors. And that is the most heartbreaking thing that we've learned through this pandemic is that it is really, really hard, not even with the physical illness and the mental illness that we see with the pandemic, but what we've had to do to our patients to try to keep everybody as healthy as possible has been very, very hard. Uh, and again, I think we've learned a lot about it now that we're starting to ease off on our restrictions, getting back towards normal. And that's really important. Well, one of the good things that could come out of a bad thing that you just mentioned is I've heard um, from medical staff and, and a patient or two that the closeness between medical staff and patient, which was always good, has become even stronger because you were their family this past year. It's amazing to see when I walk around in the hospital and on the floors recognizing that exact piece is that the medical staff, um, the nursing staff, our environmental services staff, everybody has kind of become the surrogate family for our patients in the absence of them being allocated a visitor 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's really special to see. I mean, it's, again, I'm proud to be a member of the faculty here because we've really always thought of the patient first. And it's never been more apparent through the pandemic 
to recognize that we have to do our part even more so to make sure that our patients are um, in the best condition that they can be in physically and emotionally. Yeah, that, that's very important. And something else that's really important that I think we'll close on and that you've talked about before is that in the midst of the pandemic for this past year, the number of screenings that can detect cancer in their earliest, most treatable stages are down. People are a little reluctant to, to go. Um, what are you seeing? What, do you, what are you telling people? How can we get people comfortable going back to get these life-saving screenings? Yeah, so we know that cancer screening saves lives. Um, and that's screening for things like breast cancer, for cervical cancer, for prostate cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. And so when you think about all of those conditions, which are relatively common, um, it's really important that if you pick up an early cancer, that's the stage in which it's most treatable and curable. And so that's kind of the power of screening, early detection, curing patients, and not having them require sometimes aggressive treatments and not dying of the disease. And so we saw a precipitous drop in the number of cancer screenings during the pandemic. And we probably did that ourselves by telling our patients that we're not open for business. It's not safe to be here. Stay at home and we'll get back to you soon. We're now open for business and we've learned so much through the pandemic about safety. And so limiting number of patients in the waiting rooms, you know, making sure that we have access to hand hygiene with sanitizers and hand washing, making sure that everybody's masked, and then also um, you know, all of our sterilization techniques. So it's safe to be screened now. But now the messaging has to go back to the patients that we're open for business, it's safe to have the screenings, let's get back to it. Whether somebody waits for six months for screening or longer, when you're talking about months, it probably will not influence anyone's major risk for developing a more advanced cancer. But when months turns into years and patients don't come back for their normal interval screenings, that's when we're going to start to see an increase in the number of cancer deaths going forward. Yeah, I've heard as there, there's already epidemiologists are putting estimates out there and it's it's we don't want any more deaths. We want to reduce the number. So, yeah. And you have a new special clinic dedicated to making this an even easier process. Yeah. So we, during the pandemic, uh, opened up the, you know, the cancer diagnostic clinic. This is a little bit different from screening, but this is for individuals that are with a concern that they have cancer or their healthcare providers have either felt something on examination, found something on x-ray, where there's concerns about there being cancer in that individual. But when the community uh, medical practices and some of the radiology sites or biopsy locations shut down in the midst of the pandemic, we were still open for business and made the commitment to ensure that we had the appropriate level of health equity that our patients from all over the region um, could come into the James and have their diagnosis done here and then hopefully pick up no cancer. But if there was a cancer, then to get them linked up into our healthcare system very quickly to get the cancer addressed. Okay. Well, Dave, thanks. Thanks for explaining the science of the vaccine and why it's so important and why everyone should get it as soon as they're eligible and that there are a very small segment of cancer patients who should talk to their doctors first before. But other than that, everyone get it as soon as you can. That's exactly right.
So thank you, Dave, and, and we'll have you back in a couple months. I look forward to it, Steve. Always a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu. Thank you.